series on the mystery of human suffering. And we have moved now in our puzzle to the last and center piece. And we're entering into the segment of our study in which is going to be known as rewards in heaven, as that relates to our suffering here on earth. Today's message will be entitled, God's End Goal or Purpose for Mankind. And I'd like for you to make this personal for you. If you are a believer this morning, it would be my prayer that the eyes of your understanding would be open that when you leave here today, you will have a greater understanding of what God has designed for you, and what lies ahead for you. I'm going to read three passages of Scripture because that's all the time will permit. And there are numerous passages in the New Testament referring to our subject today, and they're all related around the 8th Psalm and the first chapter of Genesis. These passages I'm going to read comprise perhaps the most widely quoted passage of Scripture in the Bible from the New Testament perspective. So first, go with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27 as we begin laboring through the subject today, what is God's end goal for mankind? And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now go with me to the 8th Psalm, a Psalm of David. David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is meditating upon the passage that we have just had revealed to us from Genesis. We'll start in verse 3 of the 8th Psalm. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man? Thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, or his descendants, that thou visited him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. We have more understanding, more revelation given to us of God of one David's words than we do in the book of Genesis here. Now let's go to the book of Hebrews where the writer there, I believe it to be Paul, enlarges further upon this question, what is God's chief purpose in creating man? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testifieth, that's David, 
What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visited him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, did set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, that is mankind, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Him is a personification for the human race. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. May God bless the reading of these words today, for each text unfolds more before us. And we haven't time to deal with the others in the New Testament today. I'll just make reference to Romans 8:17. Let me quote it to you, a very short statement. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and what? joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Now, in our study of human suffering, we've sought to understand its meaning by using the analogy of putting together the pieces of a puzzle. I've done so for your visual aid on the board to my left or to your right. And we have purposed to stay within the framework of the biblical data that is contained in Scripture. We erected the outside framework of the puzzle first, thus requiring all of the other pieces to stay within this framework. The first side of the framework we called the creature's sin. And in this, we saw that all suffering flows out of the curse which God placed on His creation due to the sinfulness of fallen angels and man. The second side of the puzzle we call the character of God. And there we saw that while God hates sin, suffering, and death, For what it does to his creative design, he nevertheless is in control of all the sin and suffering which exist. Sin did not dethrone God's purpose. In the third side of the frame, we examine the attribute of the wrath of God. And there we learn that until we comprehend the exceeding sinfulness of sin, we will never agree with the holy justice of God in the punishment of sin. We will always see that believe that we are getting the worst of the deal. When in reality, if we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, we ought to be getting a lot worse than we're getting. In that message we saw the need to distinguish between the evil of sin, which the creature commits, 
and the evil of sin's consequences which God brings on the creature. Both are described as evils in the Bible. One evil originates in the creature, and the other evil originates in God sending forth consequences of punishment for the creature's sin. Sin does not originate in God. He is holy, just, and despises sin in what it does to his creative design. The fourth side of the puzzle, we considered God's solution for suffering. And in that, we saw that God's remedy for human suffering is through the suffering of his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, the curse of suffering is lifted through the means of the cross of suffering. An interesting way to fight suffering, is it not? It's sort of like fighting fire with fire. You know, when you're going to put out a large fire, what do the firefighters do out here? They put backfires and, and, and to put the big fire out. God has ordained that through the suffering of His Son and His people, it will overthrow and conquer the suffering brought on by sin. Who would have thought that up? We then proceeded to place six individual pieces within the framework of the puzzle. We called these the individual causes of suffering. They were, number one, suffering and death is caused by God's judicial sentence upon Adam's sinful race. Number two, suffering and death may be caused by a specific sin on our part. We must consider that. Number three, suffering and death may be caused by a specific act done to us on the part of another. Number four, Suffering and death may be may not be caused by either our sin or another's sin. Job suffered, not for other's sin or his own. Number five, suffering and death may be caused by violating God's natural laws relating to uh, health, human health. And number six, suffering and death may be used by God to bring good out of an evil situation. Six individual reasons given in Scripture, there are more, but these are the main ones. We then proceeded to move from human suffering in general to the reasons for Christian suffering in particular. We looked at two basic purposes for Christian suffering. First, they identify us with Christ and connect us to His sufferings. And this achieves three things. One, it draws us closer to Christ. Number two, it draws us closer to other Christians. Sister Clyde, did you not tell me that before the service this morning? That when you suffer, you need the saints of God. You need to seek out other Christians, and it will draw you closer to them. And number three, it provides a testimony to unbelievers as they see how believers respond to suffering. The second reason for Christian suffering we saw was to produce a Christ-like character in us. And this serves, number one, to purify us from sin, number two, to wean us from this present world, and number three, to prepare us for our new home. The character which we have had formed in this life, now listen, 
will go with us into eternity. He that is unfilthy, let him what? Be unfilthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. I say again, the character which is being formed in this life will follow us into eternity. And the faithfulness manifested in this earthly life will determine our status, our position, our duties, and authority in the heavenly life to come. We'll now seek to show in the Bible that the subject of suffering, self-sacrifice, and martyrdom is organically related to the issues of rewards in heaven. And folks, I will not take the position that most take in great circles that in heaven all are equal. There are going to be degrees of rewards in heaven and different statuses and different positions. And those positions are organically related to what's going on down here in your life on earth. It will follow you there. And as we understand these connections, we will then discover the end design of God's ultimate plan with humanity. If you're a good Presbyterian, the first question which the Westminster Catechism asks is, and even though we're Baptists here today, we ought to know what that question is. What is it? What is the chief end of man? The word end means purpose. What is the chief purpose of man? The answer in the Catechism is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Got it? What does it mean, though, to glorify God? I'm glad, again, you keep asking these questions, because if you didn't ask them, I wouldn't have anything to preach about. Okay? To glorify God is to hold Him in high esteem by submitting to His authority. The degree in which a person does this, now follow me, determines the degree or the capacity in which they are enabled to enjoy God. Say it again. To glorify God is to hold Him in high esteem by submitting to His authority. And the degree in which a person does that determines the degree or the capacity in which they are enabled to enjoy God. Get it? They're organically connected. What does enjoying God mean? It means to commune and have fellowship with Him. You remember Adam and Eve did this? God would condescend and come and talk with them in the garden. And when they fell into sin, what did they do? They didn't want that communion and fellowship, and they went and hid. 
They were no longer glorifying God. Therefore, they were no longer enabled to enjoy God in communion and fellowship with Him. But as great a question as the first catechism asks, I believe there's a more important question. I don't believe the first question goes far enough. Here is the more important question. What is God's chief purpose with man? Why did He create man? Humanity. What is His ultimate purpose with mankind? And how is that purpose achieved? These questions and their answers, I believe, are the most important questions we can be asking today. What then is God's designed in purpose for mankind, particularly for you who are believers? You ready? Let's go on our journey this morning. It's a sad thing that many believers read through their Bibles and only glean bits and pieces of truth and never come to see the whole picture unfold. One cannot adequately understand the scriptural teaching on suffering and martyrdom apart from the Bible's pronouncement of God's final purpose with mankind in His heavenly kingdom and in the new heaven and the new earth. In reading the related passages that we have just read, an answer to our question emerges. God's end goal for creating the human race is to grant them the privileges of sharing His authority to rule over the affairs of the entire created universe. This was initially revealed to man in his unfallen state in the Garden of Eden. It is seen in the use of the word dominion in Genesis 1.26. And God said, now this is God speaking now, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I believe that is a reference to the triune persons in the Godhead. I don't think it's the angels and God. I think it can only be in the plural. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I know there's debates about that. But God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The word dominion means to rule or possess authority. The full revelation of how God was going to achieve this purpose, has now been revealed in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. A redeemed portion out of Adam's fallen humanity would share in the partnership of this dominion by being united to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, 
and by doing so become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, we shall also be glorified together. And Paul would say in another passage, if we suffer with Him, we shall what? Reign with Him. Romans 8:17 The moral character required by God for these positions of authority was ordained by God to be produced through the instrumentality of suffering. First, on the part of His Son, on behalf of His people's justification. And secondly, to be followed up by the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification, wherein the Holy Spirit uses the process of suffering to develop the humility necessary for man to use his delegated authority from God to serve God's honor and glory. Suffering, Brother Asa, will humble you. It's only humble people that are going to be entrusted with authority to rule in the eternal state of affairs. Get it? We begin by observing that God created the man and woman in His own image. Now, this is a moral image as opposed to a physical image. In describing the redeemed and regenerated segment of humanity, they are said to, quote, have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3.10. This image... When God created man, gave Adam a God consciousness, something which the lower creatures of the earth do not possess. In his fallen state, man does not like to retain this consciousness due to sin. In his renewed state, man is enabled to enjoy God and glorify Him in loving obedience. Hmm? You couldn't be enjoying God this morning if God hadn't done something in renewing you. You see? I was in that state one time in which I didn't want the consciousness of God in my mind because it hindered me and restrained my sinning. Now then, that's been changed. And I've been enabled to enjoy and commune with God. This image consists of both structural and relational dimensions. Let me define that. In the structural dimensions... Man was created as a free moral agent responsible for his choices and actions. Man had the capacity to reason, to feel emotion, and to will and choose freely 
as God Himself. In the relational dimensions, man was given the capacity to experience relationships with others. He could relate first with God, then the creation around him, then his wife, and later on his children and other human beings. We are a relational creature. In these God-given capacities, though, man must learn and grow. And beloved, that would have taken place in unfallen man. Adam would have continued to have been enabled to learn and grow and discover the mysteries of God and the creation. Even the sinless humanity of Jesus went through this process. In Luke 2.40, we read of Jesus, and the child grew. In verse 52, the same chapter, we read, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Did you get that? The humanity of Jesus grows and develops and learns. And the more, Brother Wayne, it's doing it, the more God is being pleased with Him. Get it? Our humanity is responsible to use the resources to us to learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may God stir up our laziness and get us interested into these things. Give us a hunger and a thirst, Brother Walter, after righteousness. Now, while the image of God in man was was damaged in the fall, it was not annihilated. Man still retains a God consciousness. He cannot get that out of his mind. There is no such thing as an atheist. We see books do, uh, Atheists Believe in God. There's another book being written, was written by John Blanchard, Does God Believe in Atheists? That's, that's appropriate. God does not believe in atheists because every human being cannot escape the consciousness of God. But there is a Creator out here from which He originated. He may try to blot all that out, but He can't escape it. The basic damage to this image in the fall is removed by Christ's redemption and by the Spirit's new birth. Yet, the responsibility to grow and develop that image to its full capacity is still there. That's in your life, as it was in unfallen Adam. We are exhorted in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24 to be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
2 Corinthians 3.18 informs us that as we focus our lives on glorifying God, submitting to His authority, we are being changed, now listen, into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Did you get that? As we're focusing on our duty to submit to the authority of God, in doing so, glorifying Him, we are becoming like Him, holy and righteous. And we're being changed in our character from one stage of glory into another. That's sanctification of character. Now, a very important aspect of this image of God in us is our character. What is a person's character? I ask you to take out a piece of paper and write down, what's the meaning of character? What would you say? Let me suggest this. A person's character is the sum total of the things which a person does. What a person does is a reflection of his or her character. Make the tree good, and the fruit will be good. Hmm? Got a bad tree, you have bad fruit. As people repeat certain actions, these actions become habits. Now, you ought to know that. I mean... <laughs> Uh, when you repeat something over and over again, it becomes a habit. And habits make up the inner structure of our character. When a person does something which we expected them to do, we say they are acting according to character. But when a person surprises us, by a certain kind of action, we say they are acting what? Out of character. Get it? There are three fundamental character traits that are required out of a person before God will bestow and confirm that person with honor, glory, and authority to rule in the eternal affairs of the new heavens and the new earth. Three character traits which you must possess before He will entrust dominion to you. First, there is a capacity and willingness to live under the authority of God. Do you think God would entrust dominion to somebody who will not acknowledge His dominion? Secondly, there is a capacity and development of a servant attitude toward others, a willingness to sacrifice one's own self-interest in order to be a servant to others. 
submission to God's authority, and the heart of a servant. The Son of Man came not to be ministered or served, but to what? To minister or serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That servant attitude has to be there before God will entrust dominion to you in the world to come. Thirdly, there is a capacity and ability, now listen carefully, that in choosing right from wrong, we would always enjoy choosing that which will honor and glorify God. Mm. Huh? Get it? That in our agency as a moral creature, before God will confirm a person with dominion, that person must possess a character trait where they will enjoy always choosing what God would have them to do. How many of you can say that's true of you today? I don't see any hands. Either I got some people who don't know what I'm talking about, or I got some awful honest people. And I believe you're honest. Because you'll have to say with David, you've got a divided heart. There's a heart that wants to glorify God, and there's a heart that wants to feed upon my selfish desires. That's got to be changed. How do you think that's going to be eradicated? Through suffering. Through suffering. Now listen, we're in some pretty deep theology here. God did not pre-program man to act like robots incapable of emotions and desires. Man was created with the capacity to enjoy his Creator as well as his creation. Man will choose to do what he becomes convinced he will enjoy the most. I'd rather play golf than mow the yard. All things being equal, where do you? How much time do you think I'd spend on both? Now you do the same thing. Whatever you enjoy the most, that's what you do the most. Those things that you don't enjoy, they get put out in the garage. Don't get around to them one of these things. Men sin because they enjoy it. Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the what? The pleasures of sin. Boy, it's easy. Man was created with the capacity to enjoy things. And he will always choose what he is convinced will bring him the most joy.
No one will live in the world to come enjoying sin. When God created human beings, He wanted persons who were capable of fellowship and partnership with Him. But in order for this to occur, now listen, these persons would have to have their character developed to the point where they would always enjoy choosing to do what God revealed for them to do. Free moral agents, yes. But even a free moral agent can choose to do what is always right. There is that potential. For God is a moral agent and He always chooses to do what is right. Since the fall of man, God has revealed that in eternity all the chosen, redeemed, and regenerated portion of humanity will do this. You agree with that? Will there be anybody in eternity in the eternal state of glory that will choose sin? No. Are they no longer moral agents? Of course they're moral agents. But now then, they always choose to do what they ought to do. In the meantime, God has revealed that His method of forming this character is through the means of suffering and death. Therefore, Paul would exhort Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3 to endure what? Hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Sister Rhonda, did you not comment to me a few weeks ago that life is hard? Endure hardness. You're in a battle. This life consists of a warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is painful. And we suffer many wounds. But it is producing a character which enables us to glorify and enjoy our God forever. And ever and ever in the world to come. In Genesis 1.28, then God delegates the authority to man. Genesis 1.26, the plan is laid out. It's revealed. Then in Genesis 1.28, it is delegated to Adam. Adam was to serve God in administering the affairs of the lower creation of plants and animals. In doing so, he was placed on a probationary test to prove the trustworthiness of his character. Could he be entrusted permanently 
to this place of honor in exercising the authority which God had delegated to him. Adam was to remain under and acknowledge God's authority over him. Get it? Adam is given authority over a segment, but he must remain under God's authority over him. Now we come to the eighth psalm. Open that to your Bibles there as we make our comments upon it. In that eighth psalm, David is meditating on the first chapter of Genesis. And he now enlarges upon the reason for man's creation. I'll start reading in verse 3. David says, when I consider the heavens, he meditates. The work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? This, this little speck. <laughs> Think of it. All of this galaxy out here. And here's one little planet, Earth, and a little speck of dust on that one little planet. Vastness and insignificance of man. Think about that when you really think you're somebody. Remember who you are. You came out of the dust, you're going back to it. But there's better news ahead. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now see, this was not revealed to us in God's revelation in Genesis 1. But it tells us, by connecting the dots, the angels had to be created in the creation week. Another whole study in and of itself. That he's made a little lower than the angels, has crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. In verses 4 and 5, David marvels at the scope and honor of glory which God has extended to the human race in light of its fragile, limited, finite makeup. When one views the glory of God, the universe and all of its galaxies, and the world of angels, how insignificant is this puny creature, man. Psalm 8 places man, now follow me, look at me here, midway in honor between the angels which are above him and the beast which are below him. Get it? How, why is this? Because man possesses an immortal spirit residing in a mortal body. Angels possess immortal spirits, but no bodies capable of death. Meanwhile, the animals have mortal bodies, but no immortal spirits. Hence, no God consciousness. Since man has both a spirit and a body, he comes in honor 
between the dignity of an angel and an animal. Get the two? Made them a little lower than the angels. But still more dignified than the animal creation. Man ranks midway on the scale of intelligent creatures. And David marvels that God would be willing to share His dominion with a creature living in a body subject to humility and death. Now, when God created man, Adam possessed a sinless character and a body of immortality. And I haven't time to enlarge upon that. That is a very complex statement, but let me define what I mean. When I say that Adam possessed a body that was immortal, I mean that there was nothing residing in Adam's structure that necessitated that he sin. Or that his body grow old and die. Herbert W. and Garner Ted Armstrong both taught that Adam would have died a natural death if he had never sinned. Not an immortal body in the sense that there was nothing residing in that body that necessitated that it die. And if you're interested in that concept, our Lord Jesus Christ was given that kind. He was made a little lower than the angels. There was no sin in Him. His body did not have to die, but He chose to forfeit. Immortality, that you and I might be made a partaker of immortality. But this nature of Adam must be tested. If he stands the test, he will be confirmed in a state of sinless perfection and enjoy his God forever in an immortal spirit, body, composition. Still with me? One day we're going to get there. We're going to possess that. What Adam could have possessed had he stood the test. So Adam is entrusted with authority over the lower creation while he is to submit to the authority of God over him. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is what represented God's authority over him. Every time Adam saw that tree, he was to be reminded, all this which God has given me to administrate, I'm still responsible to a higher authority. As long as he obeyed the command not to eat of that tree, he would continue in a state of continual well-doing, glorifying God and in turn being enabled to enjoy communion with God. But, it is a delicate balance. Now listen carefully here. It is a delicate balance for a finite creature to possess authority 
and remain in submission to a higher authority at the same time. Think of that. Man's temptation will be to remove himself out from under God's authority and claim his right to his own self-appointed authority originating in the independency of his own will. That's the characteristic, listen, of a finite creature. I believe this best explains how sin can originate in a moral creature created by God without sin. Man soon failed his test along with the angels who fell. They did so by being lifted up with what? With pride. What does it mean to be proud? Write that down on your little definition paper. Take this definition. To be proud means to believe that your authority, your honor, springs out of your own self and that no one rules over you. You're the most important being in the universe. Pride is the desire to be independent from God and free to govern your own life according to your own interest. Proverbs 16:18. Finish the quote for me. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Adam fell. Lucifer fell. They did so because they elevated their importance above that of God. In contrast to pride, Proverbs 15.33 says, Before honor is, anybody know? Humility. Humility precedes honor and glory. Pride precedes a fall. I will ascend, Lucifer said. God says, I'll bring you down. Satan deceived Adam and Eve into believing the same thing. They fell. And he deceives unconverted sinners throughout the world today with that same idea. You're more important than God. Your plans, what you want, your wishes. Your ways are best. And we still struggle with that as redeemed sinners. What is humility? Listen. Being humble means that no matter how much authority, power, and honor God bestows upon you, you remain under His authority and give Him all the praise and the glory. Get that? Huh? Humility is not running around, oh, just poor me, I'm just a nobody. 
God gives great gifts unto men. He gives them to the church. And if a preacher has great gifts, he doesn't have to go around with brute shoulders. I'm just a nobody. What his humility is, you can tell whether he's recognizing the source from which those gifts come. David was just a little keeper of sheep. And God elevated him to the place of a king. But David still recognized that God was king over King David. That's humility. And man must abide in that state before he is confirmed with a state of dominion and honor and glory. Get it? See what's coming? See what God is working at? God's judgment upon the angels that sinned and the humans who sinned was to expose them to a life of frustrated desires due to their inability to be able to control the elements, the events, and the actions of the creation round about them. Because they did not seek to glorify God's authority, they are now unable to enjoy His communion and fellowship And instead of looking up to the Creator, mankind now only can look down to the creation. And the result is, hear me, they become what they're looking at. Western society is losing my hearers, it's sight of God. As a culture, we no longer see man as a creature made in God's image whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Western society, and you that are starting to college, you'll get it in the first classes that you're there. You'll start getting this hit, hit here. There is no God. The man has come from an animal. Don't find your identity by relating to God. Relate to the creation around about you. Western society is eliminating God from its collective conscience and is worshiping and serving the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Romans 1, verse 25. And because our culture no longer looks up to God to derive its sense of identity and worth, from Him it can only look downward to the beast and derive its identity from the animal kingdom. My hearers, this is what the theory of evolution is all about. Eliminate God and evolution is the only theory left. According to this theory, we are only slightly advanced animals created from the image of the lower animal kingdom. And since we see ourselves as beasts, we begin to behave like beasts. In fact, We are behaving worse than beasts 
For we are doing things today that even the animals would not dream of doing. You become like what you are focusing on, what you're looking at. Paul describes this whole phenomena in the first chapter of Romans. Verses 21 through 23, there we read, because that, speaking of humanity, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. The lower creation which man was given a dignity over, now man has sunk. He's been demoted. And the more he seeks to escape the consciousness of God, the more animalistic he becomes. We become like what we're looking at. So what does God do? Is His purpose for man to share in His dominion over the creation now frustrated? Must God now annihilate His creation and retreat into the being He was prior to His creating? What does He do now that man has sinned? The first man has failed the test and cannot be entrusted with the creation. Now, my next little paragraph here, I'm speaking metaphorically the way the Bible does. There are times in the Bible where God says, let us go down and see what man's doing. Okay, Now, that's not to be understood that God doesn't know what to do. God condescends to relate to the realities of us as finite creatures. This is how we relate. And God many times relates in Scripture as if He was finite. Not that He is, but that He uses that, accommodates that language. So I'm going to use accommodating language here. The first man has failed the test. He cannot be entrusted with dominion over the creation. God must now find a second man. Not that this has happened after the fall, because this second man was the main man all along. He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. God's only eternally begotten Son. He who was fully God became incarnate and became fully man. He was tested in all points like the first Adam to demonstrate His willingness to submit to the authority of His Father, which was in heaven. He was a lamb examined and proved to be without spot and blemish. This test spanned some 33 years during which He passed through the varying stages of human existence, dying in the prime of His life on the cross of Calvary. And throughout his earthly life, he could say that he always did the things that what? Please the Father. <laughs> he always did it. 
Everything he did, he enjoyed it. Because he did it for the glory of God. When he came into the world of humanity, he said in Hebrews 10:7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Jesus' joy in life was to act and react in obedience to whatever the Father's plan appointed Him to do. Now, that's what you're to do. There are things, Brother Dana, that God has appointed in your life to get you to that perfected glory He hasn't appointed for me. So don't measure where you're at in this journey by what God's doing with me. All right? And I don't measure what God's doing with me, what He's doing with you. God has many paths He's taken us to glory, but it'll all be through the path of suffering. The human character of Jesus was exposed to the suffering of grief and sorrow. It was molded and developed in the furnace of affliction. And thus the writer of Hebrews, be it Paul or not, says of Jesus' humanity, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. And being made perfect. Now, now folks, this is the Bible speaking. I, if you can't fit that into your theological system, that's your problem. This is the Bible speaking. The humanity of Jesus was made perfect. It was confirmed to be perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to all of those who want to go to heaven but want to live however they want to in this life. Did I read it right? He became the author of eternal salvation unto all those that obey Him, that submit to His authority. That's lordship. That's part of salvation. It's not an afterthought. As we have previously pointed out, the word used here for obedience in Hebrews 5 means to submit the authority of one's will to the authority of a higher will. Jesus learned to submit the authority that was delegated to Him as a man to the authority of a higher will, namely that of God. And He learned to do that through all the circumstances He was put in to suffer. While he was given authority to be called the Son of Man, he submitted his humanity to the authority of his divine nature as being the Son of God. He enjoyed glorifying God in a life of total obedience. Now follow me. And he was rewarded by God by being installed in the position of Lord over all of the created universe. The humanity of Jesus is now being shared the authority of God. There is a man on the throne of God who is sharing in the partnership for the destiny of humanity. wonder how in the world we get there. 
That's an important question. It's a life or death issue question. You need to have it settled. You need to have it settled. The humanity of Jesus was confirmed to possess the characteristics of what God required. First, His humanity enjoys a willingness to live under God's authority. Second, His humanity enjoys serving others. And thirdly, His humanity enjoys choosing always that which will honor and please God. We have been predestined to be conformed to what? The image of His Son. In God's revelation and conclusion, Jesus is presented to us as the one man who has achieved the predestinated purpose of God for the human race. He's there. He's crowned with glory and honor. He's confirmed in that state a perfected humanity. He's the only one. As a man, he has been elevated above the honor and authority bestowed upon the angelic creation. He's the head of a new race of human beings described as sons of glory, his brethren, or the children which God hath given me. And thus the writer of Hebrews enlarges further upon David's thoughts in Psalm 8. Listen, for unto the angels he hath not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visited him? Thou made him, man, a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thus put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he had put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now listen carefully. But now we see not yet all things put under him. We do not see the race of Adam yet given its place of dominion. But, Brother Jim, we see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God He should taste death for every man. For it became Him of whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory. Here we come! To make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You've been predestined to be a partaker of that new race. Your character is going to be perfected through appointed sufferings by God. Here we are informed that God never designed the angels to rule over the created universe. And time won't permit, I believe, this is what led to the fall of Satan there in the first place. Satan wanted that position. He was God's right-hand man. Overall, well, I'm, I don't have time to get into that. Okay, sorry about that. Get that maybe somewhere in this series. The angels were never to serve in that honor. Even though they're higher in wisdom and power than man, 
We also learn that the human race was designed for this honor, but yet it has not yet been confirmed in that place of honor. There are many sons of Adam being taken through a preparatory process that's to be completed in their future state of glorification. I'm one of them, are you? But we do see Jesus, the one man who has achieved this destiny. He was given a human body capable of suffering and death and now has been given a glorified body in his resurrection. His character was developed through exposure to sufferings. He's now the captain or the leader of a new race of mankind who will share in partnership with him in dominion over the entire created universe, including the angels themselves. Paul asked the Corinthians, Know ye not that you shall what? Judge angels. you know that? A judge is someone who has been elevated to a position of authority over others. We, I close with this, don't go to sleep on me at this final important issue. We who are joined now to Christ, you with me? Make up an entirely new race or species of being. We are new creations. Our identity and worth does not originate in the animal kingdom, nor in the angelic species. I didn't exist as an angel and then got a body and then now I'm going to go back and be a little angel in heaven. No, 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 no. Throw out all those images you've got in your houses of men becoming angels. You're not going to become an angel. Don't identify your origin with that. Nor do we identify our worth by observing the galaxies of the universe. Oh, if we can just get the telescope out there and find out where we came from. No, no, that's not where you look. We don't even look back to the history of our old Adamic race that is perishing in its sins. The world is passing away. But our new humanity originates from the person of Jesus Christ who has run the race set before Him and is now seated on the throne of God sharing dominion with God. We must understand, though, that we must have our character developed before we are placed in that position and that God's ordained procedure for achieving this is through suffering, self-sacrifice, and martyrdom if necessary. These things make up the race and the journey on the believer's path to glory. I close with this statement. Revelation 3.21 I hope you'll see it as you've never seen it before. Jesus says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne.
even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. Oh, I tell you, that's mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling. I'm going to be a partner with Jesus Christ in exercising dominion, not just over animals, but the whole created order of angels and galaxies, whatever's there. I'm going to participate. The purpose then of God is to locate and develop a people who are capable of handling authority and to whom in the end He can entrust those jobs of ruling over His creation not merely on a trial basis but for all eternity World without end. Amen. Amen. Great things are in store for you. I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love Him. But He has revealed them unto us, His sons. Let's pray. Father, we have labored a long time this morning. Our minds, due to our conditioning in this world, find themselves difficult to follow such a long train of thought. I pray that You would do what Paul prayed about for his hearers, to begin to work in Your Spirit and all of our understanding and enlarge our minds into the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of Your love which You have for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lift us out of the pursuits of this present world and cause us to see the importance of laying up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. And cause us to number the days of our mortal lives left here, knowing that they're very brief and that our promotion and graduation day is coming. Bless us as a church. Oh, God, grow us. Cause us to see it's a privilege to come here and sit under Your Word in Sunday school and church, to come to the prayer meetings, and there we learn of You and have our minds enlarged in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Bless us as we sing our closing hymn. May we bow before You while we use the gifts that You have blessed us with. In Christ's name, Amen. All the people said,